This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Should we go back just a little bit to the very beginning? Just what it was like before this all happened. I was doing really well in school. I was in all accelerated courses. You know, I was pretty much on track. I mean, I wasn't in- This is Courtney Kalenda. And she's talking about her time as a high school student in the affluent suburb of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Courtney had everything going for her. She was at the top of her class. She was playing her favorite sport, soccer. She was popular. I was invited to the prom by a boy the year older than me that a lot of the girls wanted to go with. And they were not happy that I was going with him. And one day I was walking out to my Jeep in the back parking lot. I had my backpack on. Um, and these three girls came around and they surrounded me, started calling me like a slut, a whore. So I said something that was very, very hurtful. And they attacked me. And because of the uh, high school's, you know, zero tolerance policy, I was going to be suspended. And at the time, you know, I had big college ambitions and it was, I didn't want that on my record. I felt that it was unfair. That's when a couple of other friends told me that Mr. Bev was the one to call. Mr. Bev was Joe Bevilacqua Jr., a criminal defense attorney and the heir to a prominent political family. Everybody loved him. Everybody wanted to be around him, and everybody knew him. He was fun, and he would take kids fishing, and he made all the calzones at the soccer games, and he was just kind of like your all-American dad. He was also the son of a former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, who had been impeached for his ties to the mob. But Joe Jr. built a successful criminal law practice. He was wealthy, movie star handsome, and a good neighbor. He was known to get kids off of you know, minor drug charges or alcohol issues or, you know, parking tickets, speeding tickets. I mean, just, he just had a reputation of being the one to call. So Courtney's father called Joe. Joe invited us over to his house. I sat there with my father for a couple of hours. You know, his wife gave us Poland Springs water and we chit-chatted. He basically was acting as my attorney. And after the initial meeting, he would just call me. He said, hey, you know, I got to talk to you about this. Why don't you meet me at my house and uh, we can talk about it there. I went to his house and he walked me into the back screened in porch kind of room. And there was a chair, you know, on this wall and there was a couch perpendicular to it on this wall. And he told me to sit on the couch, but I sat down right in the little chair and I told him I was comfortable there, so he came and he sat on the very end of this couch. Started talking and that's when he, out of nowhere, just leaned in and grabbed my face and he put his tongue in my mouth. I was completely taken back, I was completely flustered. Um, 
he told me he was so sorry and he was so embarrassed and that I shouldn't tell my father and he even cried, he even had tears. Then he tried it again. And at that point I told him I had to go. How old were you? I had just turned 17. Joe Bevilacqua Jr. was 53. Today's episode, the powerful attorney who thinks he can get away with anything. And the young woman who fights back. He told me he was invincible. Those were his words. He told me that his name, that he basically can do anything he wants. He couldn't. This is Courtney's story. I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. And I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crime Town. General Assembly is considering impeaching someone. That someone is the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, Joseph Bevilacqua. Are you looking to get even with the Chief Justice for something today? No. Do you have anything against his son? He wants to smell like a skunk. That's his business. Well, what do you think you smell like? I'm not wearing a robe, sir. He's wearing a robe. Are you still a criminal? He stunk up a lot of courtrooms. Remember, they never convicted him of anything. Uh, they smeared him. They smeared my family. So he wasn't caught in any kind of overt crime. But you do not write letters of recommendation for the New England mob boss. I don't think that's a hard call. After 53-year-old defense attorney Joe Bevilacqua Jr. tried to kiss 17-year-old Courtney Kalenda, she wasn't sure what to think. Did you tell your parents about this? I didn't. I just felt like maybe it was a mistake. Maybe he really didn't mean it. And I thought I was really independent and I really didn't need my parents to help me. And you keep secrets and, you know, you feel like you're an adult. You know, I, I felt like this is no big deal. Like, I can handle this. Joe kept calling Courtney. And after a few days, she picked up. He was very nervous that I had maybe told my father. And so I, you know, assured him that, no, I didn't tell my father. Everything was fine. He called very persistently at that point. I mean, multiple times a day. And, you know, I would chit-chat with him, and he was extremely funny. I thought that he just felt like a friendship, like that he could trust me or he could talk to me. And I liked that. Joe made Courtney's suspension go away which should have been the end of it. But Joe persisted. So how did he break down your natural instincts? Took a long time. Um, He used his kids, actually. His kids were a little bit older than I, and he started bringing them around. That was really how he got me comfortable. So we would go to this restaurant, Pane Vino, on Atwell's Ave. There'd be an entire group of us, and he would buy everybody food, and everybody would be drinking. And I had never drank out in public before. I didn't even know what to order. He kept telling me to, you know, order a drink, order a drink. The only drink I'd ever known, because I'd never had it, I just ordered a tangerine and tonic, because I didn't want to look like I didn't know, you know, what to order. I had never seen anything like this before. This man threw money around like 
it was nothing. I mean, just every time he went out, you know, $700, like $1,000, you know, just, it was just very powerful on a young kid. So one night we're at Pane Vino and this one kid was talking about cocaine. Now I had never done cocaine. I was not into drugs. So he said to me, you know, would you ever try it? Do you think you'd ever try it? And I was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I would, I don't know. And at that point, Joe pulled me aside and he whispered in my ear, he said, if you're gonna do cocaine, you're gonna do it with me. I had been drinking, I kind of laughed, you know, I thought it was a joke. And he showed me under the ledge to the bar, like a little bag of white powder in his hand. And he said he was gonna get a room at the Westin. I got in his SL500, you know, this beautiful silver arrow edition, Mercedes convertible, and we drove downtown. We went in and he went to the front desk and he paid in cash, but then he gave his, you know, gold Amex card for incidentals and we went up to his room. And uh, he took the ice bucket off of the black tray by the bed and he cleared off the cups and he pulled out the cocaine and he took out his Petco card and he started, you know, mashing it up and cutting lines. Took out a $100 bill and he rolled it into a straw and he took a big line of cocaine. And then he gave it to me. And I told him I was really scared because at this point it's like, okay, well, you know, this is a little bit different than talking about it and um, I did my first line of cocaine right there. It burned, it made me feel like I couldn't swallow, um, and I got a little bit uncomfortable, like instantly. And he, at that point, got more comfortable, and he took off his clothes, and he was in his jockey shorts. He became a different person. He basically laid on top of me. He was, you know, licking my neck and my face. And he became almost like, I don't know, just like an animal almost. I just knew I had to get out of there. I ended up just telling him I had to go, um, and I did. But then, when the sun came out, it was like Mr. Bev came back. He called me the next day and we were just laughing like nothing had happened. And then that whole scene of being at Pane Vino and drinking and doing cocaine together became like a nightly ritual. How did the relationship progress? Um, it was not that far after that first incident that we had got in a room at the Biltmore and um, we had done cocaine. And I ended up leaving. And when I was almost home, he called me and he said he thought he was having a heart attack. And I got very upset, started to cry. I said, do you want me to call you know, an ambulance? He's like, no, no, you know, I'll be fine. But I got so nervous that I actually turned around and I went all the way back to the room. And he had given me instructions that, you know, if anything happened, that I should just go downstairs, leave him there, walk out nonchalantly like nothing happened and don't say a word to anybody. Now, of course, this was petrifying me. Like, I didn't want to leave him, I didn't want him to die. And so I stayed the night. 
And in the middle of the night, he woke up and he woke me up and he didn't say a word. He just climbed on top of me. And I willingly, I mean, at this point, I really thought that I cared for him. I, you know, we had sex. And it was after that that it changed everything. Um, I just, I really, I started to really fall in love with him. a really hard time dealing with what I was feeling. You know, he was obviously much older than I was, and I, he was an authority kind of figure. You know, he was Mr. Bev to me. And he would be like, well, just call me Joe. Just call me Joe. And I was like, no, I, that feels really wrong. So at some point, I just stopped calling him anything. It was a big issue for him. He would make remarks to me like, you know, I'm the guy with no name. He actually told me at one point that he had called Miss Cleo, like that psychic on TV, and he had asked her, like, why the love of his life, I'm sorry, it's, I know it's silly, why, like, the love of his life couldn't call him by his name, and supposedly she had told him that this woman, this girl, was having a major inner conflict. He would act like it really bothered him, so I started to call him Joe. And it felt really awkward, but as time went on, that kind of just faded away. And all of a sudden, he was Joe to me. He was not, you know, this adult. He was my peer. I felt like he was my boyfriend, I guess. We'd go and we'd get takeout from Pane Vino. We'd get like snail salad with just lemon and olive oil to go. And we'd go to these little hidden fishing places that he loved to go fly fishing. And we'd sit out there at night and, you know, I'd watch him fish and we'd eat snail salad and we'd drink wine and we would just like hang out. And he would tell me things like about his wife and their crumbling marriage and how really they were married, but you know, it wasn't real anymore. And he would cry. And I would feel really bad for him. Like, I thought that he was really a wounded soul. He told me that he had never felt this way before, and he told me that, you know, he was so miserable in his life, but it was, he was stuck in it, and he wished that I could marry his son, Joe, because then I would be in the family. I mean, I truly believe that he loved me, and he told me all the time that he did. It really felt like a relationship. He wanted to buy things for me. I mean, one day, out of the blue, he was like, I have $18,000, like, let's just go spend it on you. And I told him no. So then he would surprise me with, you know, like he bought me a diamond Playboy bunny belly button ring. I had like a ruby eye. And then he bought me these Roberto Cavalli, you know, like $600 sunglasses. And not to mention he was holding this cocaine in front of me, which at this point I was using every day. When did your family start to get concerned? Well. I was really out of control. Like, I was sneaking out of the house. I wasn't coming home. Um, they knew something was wrong. They didn't know it was drugs. Um, they they thought, didn't know it was Joe? No, of course not. They had no idea. They thought Joe was a savior. Because every time there was a crisis, they would call Joe, and Joe would come over, and he'd have, you know, a beer or something in my dad's kitchen, and he could diffuse whatever was going on. My dad had told him, you know, Joe, you know, she's driving us crazy. We don't know. We're so worried about her. They had even confided in him that they had tried to follow me. And Joe told him, well, did you see where she was going? Like, did you see where she, who she was meeting? And my dad said, you know, I lost her at this intersection. 
And later on that night, he had called me and he's like, your father is following you. Like, you need to be careful. You need to like, you know, stop using your cell phone as much. Use the pay phones to call. He's like, you've got to be really, really careful. Always pay attention to who's around and stuff. My parents were so grateful to him because every time he'd come around, it was like, I was okay. I would be better. You know, he'd reassure them that he was going to help me. And that's why he then gave me a job. He was basically going to hire me as like a, you know, a fake intern. It was a joke. It had nothing to do with me doing any sort of legal interning or any sort of work. It was just me following him around and being with him all day. I used to go with him to the courthouse. He took me into judges' chambers. He took me into courtrooms. I mean, he really paraded around with me like there was nothing wrong here, you know? I mean, he introduced me as his godchild to everyone who, who would come up to us. It was just so in your face. A lot of people knew something was going on. How much were you, were you uh, doing cocaine-wise? You know, it's hard for me to even, like we do it first thing in the morning, we do it in his office, we do it in his car. Like he'd pull out a yellow legal pad and we'd be in the convertible and he'd be doing it or I'd help him. I and mean, we'd be, everywhere we went, we would be doing cocaine. I was spending all of my time with this 53-year-old man when I should have been in school, you know, preparing for colleges and applications and doing all of that. Like, I just stopped caring about school, my friends, everything. And I failed out my junior year. My parents tried everything, they really did. They took away my car, they took away my access to money. They, you know, they tried, but nothing ever worked because I had Mr. Bev, like I had Joe taking care of me, driving me around, picking me up. Like, what did I need my car for? What did I need my parents' money for? I had Joe. We reached the point where I'm looking at losing my daughter. I was petrified. It was just not my child. And I said, it's just got to stop. These are Courtney's parents, Charles and Paula. By this time, they knew their daughter was in trouble. So they did something drastic. They arranged for Courtney to be flown to a boot camp for troubled teens in Utah. And I was sick about it. I, I, I have never, we fought about this for yeah, we did weeks that. before that. we actually pulled the trigger. But if we didn't stop the motion somehow, something was gonna happen. So um, around five o'clock in the morning, I woke her up, gave her clonopin because her doctor at that point said that would make her a little bit sleepy and less aggressive. I said, they're gonna take you to Utah. And um, they took her out screaming, you know, literally hanging onto the door jams, and they drove away. I was so disturbed by it, we had a little poodle at that time and I took Spencer out and I walked around in circles on my street until I knew that they were gone. And I just came back in the house after it was over and I just started crying. And things got worse. We became aware of the fact that there was cocaine involved here. Um, we didn't know where she was getting it from, but... I mean, it just didn't even come into my head. And little did I know, shame on me. 
coming up, the Kalendas learn the truth about Joe and try to save their daughter. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Soon after her parents discovered she was using cocaine, Courtney Kalenda was moved to a drug rehab. This lockdown drug facility, it's basically where they try to break you and rebuild you into like what they want. I mean, this was a kind of place that you couldn't even make eye contact with anybody. Everything was timed. You couldn't get off a of bed. If you did, they would tackle you. They would put you in a padded room. I mean, this was an absolute nightmare. I said to myself, you know, maybe if I just tell them what's going on, that, I, you know, this isn't just like a mental problem, like I'm not having some sort of, you know, mental illness. But, but I did. I opened up. I said it was Joe. I got a call at work, and they said, are you home? And I, I said, no. Again, Courtney's mother, Paula. The counselor that was working for her said, where's your husband? Get him, go home, because there's something we have to tell you. And so I'm thinking, okay, I go home, we're on the phone, we're listening, and he said, Joe Bevilacqua has been supplying her with cocaine. He's the one doing all of this to her. I had no clue that he was into drugs and that he was after young girls. Courtney's father, Charles. But then one night I was standing in the dining room, it was a Sunday night, I believe, and I looked out the window and I see this car driving by my house slowly and I recognized the car right away. That's Joe. I'm gonna go out and, you know, track him down. So I ran out, got into my car, and I followed him right to his condo and he had gotten out and uh, his daughter was with him. And I said, Joe, hey doc, how you doing? And he put his hand out and I wouldn't shake his hand and he knew, right then and there, he knew something was up. And I told him, I said, my daughter said this and you did that and you did that. And you know, he told his daughter to go inside and uh, denied everything. He just said, you know, he didn't do that, would never do that. He goes, I may have kissed her one time, but I treated her like my own daughter. I had a choice. I could have run him over. <laughs> I could have started a fight with him, and I didn't do that. And I contacted our attorney and uh, wrote Joe this letter, uh, accusing him of all the things that we found out, telling him to stay away, and that we were probably going to sue him. After three months in rehab, Courtney was alone and feeling desperate. It was just unbelievably awful. And when I turned 18, I signed myself out. At this point, I was all like Joe. You know, my parents were the bad guys. You know, I loved him. He loved me. Like, it was this full force. Like, he had full power. So even though they had told me never to talk to Joe again, I reached out to him. 
So when I called him, the first thing he said to me was, what took you so long? I met him at this little place. It was this place that we used to like to go to when we were going fishing. It was called Country Pizza. It's like in the middle of nowhere, it feels like. And he was sitting in his, the only spot he liked to sit in a restaurant was like the back corner because nobody could be behind him. And he had his Maui gym sunglasses on, you know, looks really out of place, like pretending to be incognito, you know, in the corner. And as soon as I walked in that door, like we both kind of just like started to laugh, big smiles. And he just gave me the biggest hug. And he was like, I have missed you so much. We had like some chicken wings or something and we got into his Ford Explorer and he kissed me and he told me, I'm gonna lie to my sons, I'm gonna tell them I'm going fishing this weekend and we're gonna spend every second together. And that's what we did. I don't know, it felt like nothing, it had never ended. There, I felt like there had never been a break, like I had never been away from him. And within one week, he had given me cocaine again. And it was shortly after that that um, he impregnated me. At this point, I'm 18, and I had been drinking and doing cocaine. You know, I, all I had was this thought that like my body was like a cesspool and this poor child, God only knows what it would, kind of problems it would have. And I decided that I wanted to get an abortion. Um, we went to Planned Parenthood downtown and, um, and I felt tremendously guilty like walking in that door. Two of Courtney's friends confirmed that at the time she got pregnant, she told them Joe was the father. On Courtney's Planned Parenthood intake form, a man named Joe is listed as the emergency contact. His relationship to Courtney is listed as uncle. We were there for five hours. It was awful. Um, I was awake for it. It was painful and it was disturbing. Then afterward, Joe bought me a dog, bought me a puppy to try and like make it up, make it up to me. You know, he was sorry and this was going to be like a replacement for like my baby or something and um the relationship just deteriorated <sighs> it was just ugly i was so angry with him i was just so angry in general like my life was a disaster um i went from being this you know great student great athlete to being you know being a dropout of high school it was just i felt terrible about myself hated him and then he was kind of pulling away from me at the same time, um, which made me even angrier. Because I'm like, you think that you can come into my life when I'm 16 years old, I'm 18 now, you've destroyed my life, like you've done all this to me, and you think you're just gonna walk away? You know, like I was furious. I kind of realized I couldn't trust him anymore. I, I kind of realized he wasn't the man that I thought he was. Courtney realized who she could trust, her parents. They had kind of stepped in. They told me that they had been following me. And I confided with my mother at that point that I had had an abortion. And, you know, I had cried to her. And I'm back understanding that my parents are the good force and he's like the bad force. The age of consent in Rhode Island is 16, so criminal charges weren't possible. But the Kalendas felt they had to do something. 
He underestimated her and he underestimated us and we won't go away. And he used to think that he could get away with anything. He always felt that way and not with this one. He picked on the wrong family. The word kind of got out that we were going to go public. We started getting phone calls from all of the Bevilacqua's cohorts. Don't do it, do this and that. It was very it really scary got scary. Fallout. It got real nasty. And you know, I started second guessing myself. We all started second guessing ourselves. Do we continue to move forward? I just wasn't gonna let this SOB get away with it. So we decided we were gonna go forward. And um, we went to the paper. And they put it on the front page of the paper on Father's Day. The Providence Journal, Sunday, June 19th, 2005. The front page headline reads, Family Blames Lawyer for Their Daughter's Downfall. We just threw it all out there and it was explosive. Quote, the drugs and sex became a nightly ritual, carried on at various hotels and even a couple of times in his office. The main source for the journal story is a complaint the Calendas filed with the disciplinary board of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. In it, they detail the relationship between Courtney and Joe, backed up by letters Joe wrote to Courtney and documents illustrating a timeline of events. This was not the regular kind of Joe Bev stuff. Uh, it's just Joe Bev with the glorified, you know, mafia crap that people love in this state. This was like, what? I had a subscription to the Providence Journal, and I've seen this girl, Courtney Kalender, who I'd never heard of before, has the litigation against attorney Joe Bevilacqua. Charles the Ghost Kennedy was serving a 15-year sentence for drug smuggling. But before he got locked up, his lawyer and friend was Joe Bevilacqua Jr. We had a lot of common interests. Fishing, girls, drugs. Joe loves cocaine. <laughs> I was the guy. Charles says Joe offered him more than just legal advice. Either he gave me customers or if I needed supply, he would uh, direct me to good people. As a criminal defense lawyer, he always had someone wanting to do business with me. This accusation from Charles is supported by law enforcement sources, who told us they investigated Joe for facilitating drug deals. So Joe was on both sides of the law. Well, he was always on one side, and that was uh, on the criminal's side. He was a, a criminal disguised as a lawyer. <laughs> Eventually, Charles and Joe had a falling out. As Charles tells it, after he was arrested, Joe shook him down for extra cash, promising to get his sentence reduced. But Joe never delivered. You bastard. Everything I've done for you, as close as we've been, you're going to betray me for money, you fucking Judas. So when Charles saw the article in the Providence Journal, it compelled me to uh, write to Courtney's dad. Dr. Charles Kalenda. My name is Charles Kennedy. I am a federal prisoner, presently in I get this letter from federal prison addressed to me. I'm saying, what is this? I open up the letter and I start reading this letter. And it was captivating. I personally witnessed Bebelak was secret, dysfunctional lifestyle. 
along with the seemingly never-ending parade of impressionable young women who succumbed to his false masquerade of deception and lecherous advances. In closing, Dr. Klender, I, I don't... I mean, this person, Charles Kennedy, he hates Joe for a lot of reasons, but he gave me tons of information about Joe, uh, which was pretty much all bad stuff. And I signed it with respect, Charles Kennedy. It was such an eye-opener to understand that this man was not just a bad guy who did this one thing. Like, it wasn't an aberration like of an otherwise, you know, great life. This was a pattern of a lifetime of behavior. You know, I was nothing to him. <laughs> I was just one of many. Eventually, his behavior caught up with him. Around the time that the Kalendas went public, Joe's professional life was falling apart. During one particularly important trial, he had leaked evidence to the news media and then lied about it. In 2005, he was sentenced to 18 months for perjury and contempt of court. Since then, Terracani source has been identified as Joseph Bevilacqua, who had leaked an undercover FBI videotape showing a top Providence official taking a bribe. Then in 2007, he was indicted again and sentenced to 21 months in prison. Attorney John Cicilline and his law partner Joseph Bevilacqua Jr. pleaded guilty to federal charges including conspiracy and obstruction of justice. For exactly what Charles Kennedy accused him of. Prosecutors say the legal duo shook down their own clients who were accused of drug dealing. The most damaging thing for me has been trying to understand that this man made me love someone that wasn't real. Like, I have this dichotomy. I have this kid in me who believes that he was my friend, that he loved me. And then I have this adult that has been through, you know, over a decade of therapy that understands that he was a predator, that he's this, you know, he's a sick man. Um, but I have never been able to fully feel like one. I don't know how to explain it. Um, the fact that I can tell you there is a part of me that still loves him is, is upsetting. It's destructive. It has been nearly half my life just dealing with it. And I mean, he, he changed the course of my life completely. Even with relationships, I have never been able to be in a relationship with someone my age my views on having kids. Like, I just don't think I want any. I don't think I want, I don't know. I just don't think I can. He took that away from you too. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I'm sorry. sorry. Joe Bevilacqua Jr. was released from prison in 2010. He had been disbarred so he got a job managing a tennis club. He declined multiple requests for a comment on this story. Courtney Kalenda has tried to move on with her life. Then, in 2014, Courtney and her boyfriend were driving through a parking lot. It's like I saw him before I actually saw him. Like my body saw him or sensed him because I looked up and I just knew it was him. He was in a suit and he looked miserable. And, you know, he's pulling his tie off like he didn't want to be wearing it. And I see this long blonde hair and I realized it was his wife. And my first impulse was to 
get out of the car. Like I wanted to just go right up to him and confront him and say something to him because now I haven't seen him in, you know, face to face in a very long time. Courtney watched as Joe and his wife walked into a restaurant. I said, I'm going in there and he's going to see me in a way he's never seen me before. Calm, controlled, and not emotional to the point that he thinks that he can provoke me. As I walked in, he was right in the first seat, the first table behind the bar, right in the front. And he was looking down at the phone and I went right up to the table and I said, hi. And his wife, you know, turned around and she had her readers on. And after her initial horror, she kind of goes, Sorry, I, I don't I don't recognize you. I go, oh well maybe we should ask your husband then. And that's when he kind of like looked up. He saw me and he put his phone down. It's like he just sunk into his chair and he put his head back and he smiled at me. And I looked at him and I got very close and I said, How was prison? It stopped the whole conversation with their table. I mean they were there with somebody else. And I stayed perfectly calm. And I said to my boyfriend, okay, let's go. And we just walked out. And I didn't look back. Crime Town is me, Mark Smerling, and Zach Stewart-Pontier, in partnership with Gimlet Media. We were produced this week by Austin Mitchell and Rob Zipko. Our senior producer is June Nellis. Editing this week by John White, Soraya Shockley, Caitlin Kenny, and Shruti Pinamanani. Fact-checking by Max Thorne. This episode of Crime Town was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. Our credit track this week is Backwards by Alice Cohen. Original music by John Cusiak, Kenny Cusiak, John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. Archival footage courtesy of WPRI Channel 12. Thanks to the Kalenda family, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Tim White, The Providence Journal, Lisa Newby, Brennan Reese, and everybody else who shared their stories with us. For a full list of credits, bonus content, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. We are hard at work on season two, and we also have one more bonus episode coming this month, so keep an eye on the feed. Thanks for listening.